Hello again to my favorite corner of the internet, female Formula One fans. Welcome back to yet another episode of The Grid, but for girls. I'm your host, Morgan, and if you're new here, welcome, and don't let the podcast title fool you, absolutely everyone is welcome. The original goal behind this podcast was simply just to create a space for my fellow female F1 fans to come for race recaps, news, and other content without the judgment that sadly comes from the older male fans of the sport. So now that we've covered the basics, I've gathered you all here to chat about something a little bit different this week. The great F1 rebranding. But before we get further into that, let's quickly recap the excitement that unfolded in Mexico City this weekend and what that means for our drivers and constructors championships, with only four more races to go until the season comes to a close. In the weeks leading up to this GP, there was like a ton of buzz about how this was going to be a Red Bull circuit through and through. And then free practice happened, and then qualifying happened, and then Hamilton and Bottas clinched their first front row lockout of the season, and the rest of us sat with our jaws on the floor, and Verstappen and Perez in third and fourth, wondering what the heck happened to Red Bull's pace. But Sunday rolled around, and I guess Max spent the night studying race tapes because he attacked the opening sequence of corners flawlessly, leapfrogging himself ahead of both Mercedes boys. And after a messy start and a lovely spin-out, delivered by Mr. Danny Rick, Bottas found himself knocked from a season-best pole position to finishing outside of the points, leaving us with a Verstappen-Hamilton-Perez podium. And now that we've covered our championship frontrunners, let's take a look at the middle of the grid. McLaren and Ferrari are making sure that the competition for third in the Constructors' Championship is anything but dull. McLaren Science finished in 5th and 6th, gaining a solid 18 points for Ferrari. However, the McLaren boys had a bit of a rough one this weekend, with Norris all the way down in 10th and Ricardo in 12th, ranking in a measly 1 point for the team. At this point, Verstappen is now 19 points ahead of Hamilton in the Drivers' Championship, leaving us with current ranking Verstappen, Hamilton, and Bottas in third. And Mercedes still holds Red Bull by one in the Constructors' Race. One last thing to keep an eye out for, Ferrari now leads McLaren for third by 13 and a half points, making Mercedes, Red Bull, and Ferrari our new Constructor Top 3. Danny and Lando have their work cut out for them this weekend going into Brazil if they want to get that place back. So this week's episode is going to be a little bit different than normal. With the season coming to a close in the next few weeks, that means we've got a new season of Drive to Survive on the horizon. And for a lot of F1's newer fans, that's the show that introduced them to this sport. But ahead of a new season, I think that it's important that we discuss the reason for the show's creation in the first place and its role in Formula One's rebranding. For those of us who have been fans of the sport for a while, we may already know most of this, but I think it's important that we bring our new friends into the loop. So way back in January of 2017, the Liberty Media Corporation acquired the Formula One group. Their goal was to rebrand the old, some might say boring and tired, world of F1 into something exciting and full of life again. F1 has been around for over 70 years, and its viewership thus far has strongly relied on an audience that grew up watching the sport 20, 30, 40 years ago. Liberty wanted to revitalize a dynasty, and to do that, they needed like a Sandra Bullock in Miss Congeniality size to make over. 
So their focus shifted to new broadcast and digital deals, such as Netflix productions like Drive to Survive and the Schumacher documentary. Some other major upgrades to their F1 TV streaming service and a new partnership with ESPN to bring F1 back to U.S. television. Their GP weekends also needed some significant revamps, making improvements to Grand Prix weekend events and even some improvements to the circuits themselves. A major criticism of the sport pre-rebranding was that it had gotten too sanitary. It was too clean. Viewers wanted to see real racing again. They missed the intense rivalries that formed between drivers, and they missed the excitement, the drama, the unpredictability of the earlier days of F1 before it became so clinical. The rules put in place by the FIA to ensure driver safety were not a changeable variable. So in Liberty's rebranding, circuits underwent some construction as well, adding some more corners to create some more opportunities for overtaking and overall just create a more interesting race. Liberty also opted to finally replace their 23-year-old logo with a sleeker, more modern design that reflected the actual shape of an F car, an F1 car. Flat sleek low to the ground and honestly like if a logo could scream speed this this would be it the new logo is modern it's also retro it matches the dynamic of the sport bringing in this new age but also with a great appreciation for everything and everyone that came before so all of these changes were in an attempt to broaden their viewership and appeal to a wider audience and if this podcast is any indication i think it's working So, why was Drive to Survive created in the first place? The biggest reason for this is simple. F1 needed viewers. They've always been the biggest name in motorsport in Europe, the UK, the Middle East, and Asia, but they really struggled to make a name for themselves in the US. And as we know, Formula One racing has a certain wow factor that other motorsports often lack. Their diverse roster, charismatic drivers from all over the world, the sheer speed at which these boys have to maneuver, such complex tracks, and just like the intricacy and the uniqueness of the cars themselves because each team gets to create their own car. F1 has all of the things that Americans should love, but motorsport in the US has been dominated by NASCAR for decades, which, I mean, I might be a little biased here. It's not half as fun to watch, but... Thank you to our favorite streaming giant, Netflix. There was a light at the end of the tunnel for Formula One, and they finally got their foot in the door. Drive to Survive gave a unique view of the sport, and for the first time, we, as viewers, got to be an insider and really see the inner workings of an F1 season, and we ate it up like an eight-year-old with a pillowcase full of candy after trick-or-treat. Combine the success of the show with F1's ESPN deal to bring the sport back to U.S., And you've got viewership numbers increasing faster than Verstappen down the straights with clean air. Like, Drive to Survive did something unique for F1. It opened the sport to a whole new age group. Viewership among people ages like 18 to 34 skyrocketed. And female viewership of the sport more than doubled. And, I mean, we can acknowledge that these drivers are straight up gorgeous, which probably definitely helped pull in female viewers. But still... For years, F1 struggled to appeal to the younger generations that would eventually be the ones to keep the sport afloat. Their use of such a youth-targeted platform turned out to be insanely effective for them. And I mean, while we're on the topic of younger viewers and women, 
I think that it's only appropriate to address the power of the fangirl and their impact on this sport. Because let's be real here, like, we were all around for the insanity of One Direction. The power that one the young girls have to garner support for the things or the people that they love is unmatched. One Direction, a group of five scrawny boys on the UK's X Factor to one of the biggest boy bands of all time. Hell, fangirls even essentially fueled the entire boy band resurgence. And to quote my favorite resident defender of the fangirls, Mr. Harry Styles, they don't lie. If they like you, they're there, they don't act too cool, they like you and they tell you, which is sick. And yes, I may or may not have had that quote memorized, and no, we're not going to discuss why. But honestly, I could not agree more. Like, their impact on Formula One team's internet presence is nothing short of impressive. They create fan pages across every major social media platform. They interact with their favorite driver socials. They make memes, edits, merch, and they do it loudly and shamelessly, which is beyond admirable. These younger fans have been incredibly helpful to F1's rebranding because thanks to the generational differences, the pure gumption, and the take-no-shit attitude of Gen Z and millennial fans, they aren't afraid to fight some gatekeeping middle-aged men on the internet. They want to be F1 fans, and they'll be damned if they're going to let anyone stop them. The sheer increase of young fans of the sport create is has birth spaces for groups of fans to gather and interact, like this one, whether it be through Discord servers or blogs or podcasts. So when it all comes down to it, we kind of have Netflix to thank for these new communities, these new friendships that we've been forming, and just the increase in quality post-race memes, because let's face it, nobody makes memes better than millennials and Gen Z. Okay. Okay, so I know I've done a lot of hyping up Drive to Survive, but if we are going to talk about this rebranding objectively, there are some negatives that need to be addressed. And while the show has been incredible for increasing viewership, they take some pretty big creative liberties that tarnish its authenticity. Season after season, the show's producers have notoriously sacrificed honesty for drama, leaving out actual important events of the season to make room for exaggerated and sometimes even fabricated events. The aim of shining of shining light on these discrepancies is not to turn anyone against the show by any means, but we have to remember that despite these close communities in, that we've built and the love for the sport, F1 is a business. And the show does provide some really good insight as to how the world of F1 and the business actually runs. But it does feel unfair and a little unethical to welcome new fans to sport without letting them know that real-life F1, while it is dramatic, is not as serious and rivalrous as the show paints it to be. In reality, all 20 drivers on that grid get along with each other fairly well. Most are even really good friends. Racing incidents happen, but they don't really birth the types of rivalries that Drive to Survive shows you that they do. Season 3 aired on March 19th, 2021, and it covered COVID and the unprecedented 2020 season, and it dedicated an entire episode to the breakup of Carlos and Lando, the Carlando Dream Team. The two of them worked really well together, on and off the track, and when Carlos' contract was up at the end of the season, he left McLaren and signed with Ferrari for 2021. Producers took this and ran with it. 
They painted this as the end of Carlos and Lando's iconic friendship, claiming it had created such a fierce rivalry between the two that it had become an obstacle in their working relationship, which could not have been further from the truth. Yes, Lando was probably sad that his friend was leaving for another team, but switching teams once contracts expire is the norm of the sport. And as a McLaren fan, it hurts to say this, but Lando will leave the team someday too. Team changes aren't always these grand betrayals that Drive to Survive continuously makes them out to be. It's just how the sport works. Teams pick drivers that they think they can win with, and sometimes that means they don't re-sign a driver, or they want a driver from another team, so they make an offer. And sometimes a driver is just looking for change or move on to a better team, like George Russell moving up to Mercedes this year, or Valtteri Bottas leaving Mercedes and going to a lower team, Alfa Romeo, just to stay in the sport at all. For Carlos and many other drivers, racing for an F1 staple like Ferrari is something they've dreamt about since their karting days, and you can't fault them for taking that opportunity. And contrary to what the episode shows, Lando didn't fault him either. The two remain really good friends, and we still get plenty of interaction between the two. I think they went golfing together last weekend. So Drive to Survive kind of manufactures this drama just to to keep you entertained and to keep you attached and to keep you coming back and essentially to get you motivated enough to watch the next season or just the next season of the show or the next racing season. The season three producers also left out a ton of key events from the 2020 season, like George Russell sitting in a Mercedes seat for the first time, Honda's bombshell exit from F1, and the Williams family exit from Formula One, which was a massive deal that Netflix actually had footage of. They had interviews and footage of the actual contract signings, and they just didn't use it. They also left out Lewis Hamilton's Black Lives Matter activism, which was a huge topic of conversation throughout the entire season due to him being the only black driver on the grid. Netflix missed an incredible opportunity to talk about something meaningful, and they fumbled the bag on that one. They also left out his seventh world champion t- uh, seventh world champion title win, which to the general public wouldn't be that big of a deal, but to Formula One fans, that's a massive deal. He broke Michael Schumacher's record for championships. Michael Schumacher is a legend. So showing that is showing kind of the essence of the sport, how, how you can grow. And the show also failed to show us a few key drivers at all. Like where was Max Verstappen all season? Where was George Russell? Both very prominent and highly talked about drivers on the grid, and uh, they just were there in passing. There's no focus on them at all. Show producers also falsified events in the show, just to like kind of add to the narrative that they had created previously. In the episode centered around Carlos and Lando's split, the show producers took team radio footage that was clearly from a collision between Perez and Norris from the Austrian season opener and inserted it into an episode with a Norris science collision. And producers are also notorious for adding sounds to fill silences. If you watch race day coverage and they show you footage of inside of the garage, like between qualifying rounds, they're usually fairly quiet. Everyone does their own thing to prepare, but in the show, they insert tire change noises anywhere they can so there is never any silence. They also include other false sounds, like the car sounds used throughout the entire series are from a V8 engine. F1 hasn't used V8 engines since 2013. 
They switched to a much quieter V6 in 2014 in an attempt to be more environmentally friendly. The show did do a fantastic job of creating a high-intensity and drama-filled season. They just didn't do it honestly. Watching it, it was very apparent like who their target audience actually was, and it wasn't existing F1 fans. Liberty's use of Drive to Survive to pull in new viewers worked, but the, the question is, is, was it really all that ethical? What happens when people get into the show after this next season, start watching races, and then realize it's not what they expected? Yes, F1 has its own dramatic moments, but setting these new fans up with such high expectations going in doesn't feel like the right way to go about it. But regardless of if it feels right, I have to admit that it's working for them. Drive to Survive gets them in the front door, and then the charismatic, lovable drivers like Danny Rick or Lando Norris, and insane races like Sunday's Mexican GP are what get them to stick around. And another important aspect to touch on, a Drive to Survive episode is 42 minutes. They cover practices, qualifying, and the race itself, whether like weather permitting, of course, if the race actually happens, and while still providing additional info, like interviews and content. Actually getting into the sport is a much larger time commitment than the show makes it seem, if you actually want to watch it all. There are three free practices in a race weekend, each about an hour. Qualifying itself is at least an hour without safety cars or weather delays, and the race itself is roughly two hours without delays. So with a median of 54 laps, it's not all high intensity all the time. We could go a solid 20 laps without any overtaking at all. And another aspect that people love about Drive to Survive are the driver interviews and behind the scenes footage. And you don't really get that as a regular viewer watching it on TV unless your driver ends up on the podium or you go out of your way to look for those things. So viewers wanna see that behind the scenes footage, interviews, press conferences, and that kind of stuff, they're found on like the F1 TV platform, Sky TV, or YouTube. And if you want that look into drivers' personal lives, you have to follow their social media platforms like TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, and a lot of the drivers even are on Twitch. But say your favorite driver is Fernando Alonso, who is arguably one of the oldest drivers on the grid, he's not going to be able to work half of those things. So that is an aspect of their lives that you will just be without. Now, this big misconception about like tv versus reality is is not the fault of drive to survive per se like we can't expect something that is purely designed to bring in viewership to mention something that may sway a viewer away from the sport like you can't just put a disclaimer at the beginning that says disclaimer this episode is 42 minutes but all of this stuff together took about seven hours to watch but like i felt like it was something important to mention so why did I waste the last 19 minutes of your time telling you all of this? Transparency. F1 is an incredible sport, and new viewers deserve to get to know what they're getting into. It's important to recognize what companies like Liberty are doing with these changes and what our part is in them. Existing fans and newer fans are all a part of this new brand, and being able to recognize your part helps you as a viewer and also helps F1 from a consumer input standpoint. They're interested in what their fans want, so recognizing that your opinion matters to them can help to get more of what you want brought into the F1 scene. For instance, ladies, four years ago, absolutely nobody was asking when a woman would be an F1. It's not a man's sport. 
The W Series women are insanely talented, and if given the opportunity and adequate equipment that comes with F1 funding, we're looking at a serious force to be reckoned with. And this didn't come about organically. Having this insane influx of female fans advocate advocate for representation is what's driving this discourse. And so to wrap it all up, don't hate drive to survive. Just recognize it for what it is, branding and viewership building. They're selling the story of F1 and they're trying to grow the sport. So let's use this to our advantage. Recognize your influence as a consumer and advocate for what you'd like to see included in the future, whether it be more diversity, gender representation, driver fan interactions, or even team challenges on social media. They're listening to what we want. So now is the time for us to lay the groundwork for the next few decades of this sport. Thank you guys so much for listening and I will see you all next week.